1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching with an introduction and the book of Third John.
0: Fellow helpers, we know that Gaius' gift, we, we know not what his gifts were, but we know that he was committed to assist. That's what the, the, the term reveals to us there. Now, if John did write these letters after the Patmos vision, that makes up the book of Revelation, then these are his swan song. It's possible these might be the final, his final message, uh, you know, to his believers. And we often want to ask ourselves, were all the prominent men in the early church exemplary? No, apparently not. We're going to now encounter a negative example, Okay. Theoprophes, or however you pronounce that, the dictator. And we're going to find that he has five specific indictments leveled against him. Verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but not diatrophes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, and receiveth thus not. you got a couple of issues right there. And uh, he loves to have preeminence among them. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, if I asked you who was Mr. Arrogance on the on the radio? Most of you could quickly fill in the blank of that, because that's that's somewhat his image. But in this case, this particular one, receiveth this not. So okay. What is this all about? Hospitality was a key commitment among the early church. You know, we think travel's tough today. We just got back from a church serving at a conference and having to connect flights, and you come back exhausted. But <laughs> in those days they didn't have TSA. They didn't have, uh, you know, airline check-in problems. We think we have a tough time. They, did, they went on foot. They went on foot. But Peter also emphasizes the issue of hospitality in his letter, as does Paul in his, in Timothy, Romans, and Titus, and so on. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. This guy's a first-class troublemaker, isn't he? John says, wherefore if I come? I'll remember his deeds, which he doeth. And then he goes on to list them. Okay? Prattling, Prattling against us with malicious words. That's the one that bothers me the most about this. What a tragedy that there's so much slander and defamation within the body of Christ. That's been one of the toughest adjustments that I've made going from the secular boardrooms. Spent 30 years in in, in the boardrooms. Now I look back and realize that I had the benefit of uh, of dealing, uh, being involved with some really first-class people. May not have been believers, don't be sorry, but they were quality people. My biggest adjustment in getting into full-time ministry has been dealing is to deal with the shoddy ethics uh, within the community. The deceit and the uh, slander, and uh, it's just uh, uh, the, the toughest part of the last couple, last twenty years. I've just been doing the you know full-time part of this. I was thirty years in the boardrooms and about twenty years in in, in you know doing what we're doing here. But uh, anyway, we'll talk a little more about this before we go. Contention is the evidence of pride. People say, Chuck, will you will you enter into a debate on pre-trip, post-trip? No. Somebody wants to talk about it. He wants some serious understanding of why we hold those views. Great, but I don't believe in debates. Not for these kinds of things. Why? Because that—that's a pride issue. Where there's contention, there's pride, and I, I, that, that to me sounds dangerous. We've got to be cautious about accepting what we hear about God's servants. We've got to be be very cautious, and uh, we hear we. Uh, of every, of every conflict, you know there's a major side you have not heard. So we should give that great respect. The part we haven't heard. The disturbingly frequent occurrence of gossip, and even worse than that, public slander among Christians, is one of the most astonishing paradoxes that I've encountered in the decade of professional Christianity that succeeded my three decades of an executive career in the secular world. And I've included some notes on this most hurtful sin in addendum to the study when we finish here. But you should also recognize there's a fatal disparity between rejecting doctrine and false teaching and the rejection of the brethren with whom we may have a divergent view. That's the other side of this tension we were talking about. And uh, so, th- this fatal disparity between rejecting doctrine and false teaching and the rejection of the brethren. This indicates an insecurity... God was a threat to Dioplatry's uh, station. He certainly wouldn't be looking forward to John's threatened visit, I'm sure. This also indicates that Jesus wasn't preeminent in his life. That, that, that we know a lot about him by these actions, the, the, this errant member. But we do need to be diligent to have no fellowship with apostates, as we reviewed in our Second Peter study and Jude studies. And we should refrain from entangling Alliances with unbelievers, we learn in 2 Corinthians 6. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. See, they that do evil can include pulpits, authors, and TV and radio commentators. If they're not on the mark, they can be promoting... Misunderstandings, deviant views. We need to understand the dangers there. We should also avoid those whose doctrinal position is contrary to Scripture. That was one of the, that was a part of the good news of the the Church at Ephesus. when Jesus wrote the letter to Ephesus, they were strict on doctrine. Now they had some problems, lack of devotion, some other things, but they 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 did hold to this well. they, they reflected Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Now, John's other two epistles are going to stress this same point, one of them in a very surprising way, but I'll leave that for the time when it comes up. There are five indictments. If you go through the verse I just read, there are five indictments, like I love. He must occupy the leading position in the church, apparently is his view. wants to be preeminent. He actually refused to receive the apostle John. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? fact uh had an interesting question posed to me my wife and I have just finished a book called The King of the Power and the Glory which is really quite a uh, it's really addressed to the church of Laodicea assuming that it's indicative of our day and uh, but somebody and, and and a number of pastors have been, not a number a few have uh, been quite uh, stressed over our book and uh, uh, but one of the one of our defenders rose that said what do you suppose was the reaction of the pastor of the church at Laodicea when he received the package from John from Patmos. And that's a speculation. We don't know what happened. Someone says, Yeah, we probably convened a council to excommunicate John. <laughs> so, but that's sort of the flavor we've got here. Third, he made malicious statements against the apostles, he refused to extend hospitality to the missionaries. And finally, he excommunicated those who did not receive, excuse me, who did receive the missionaries. He only refused hospitality. He excommunicated those who d- did receive. The one of these that bothers me the most is number three. He made malicious statements against the apostles. And I'm going to come back to that one before we're through tonight. You, got, you know anybody like this, by the way, in our day-to-day? People are self-opinionated, self-exalting rather than self-effacing. Self-made, self-sufficient, self-willed, self-satisfied, self-confident. Do you know any like that? In a word, they're in the flesh. It's not in the Spirit. Now, he ostensibly was uh, the first exalted ruler of the church. When he dies, wisdom will die with him, it would seem. And I'm being facetious here. You know, such can wreck a church. And also, don't overlook the presence of Mrs. Diotrephes, too. Even among the disciples, there were excessive aspirations. We see that in Matthew 18, in contrast to the kenosis of Philippians 2 and so on. We could go on and on about that one. Preeminence is not for the pastor. The preeminence is reserved for our King, Jesus Christ himself. That's what Colossians 1.18 is all about, and so on. And... Uh, even John the Baptist said it so well. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the spiritual position. And by the way, the Greek verb here is in the present tense, active voice, it indicates that this was a constant attitude at Geoffrey's at Gio- at Gio- at Gio- to promote himself. It wasn't an incident, it was his style. There is a plaque that hangs in, my wife, in the lobby of my wife's ministry that I think is terrific. It's attributed to Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, agape, love. Boy, good advice. Okay, third, the third uh, epistle, John, now we take the third guy, Demetrius. Now, he's the exemplar, and he gets a commendation, of course. Verse 12, Demetrius hath a good report of all men. That in itself is staggering. He had a good report of all men. That's pretty cool. Everyone has their boosters. No, this one has a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Now, again, I believe that that John has a style here of using that as a title of Christ. In fact, it probably should be capitalized. But anyway, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. In other words, there's a report of all men, but those all men include me. What he's saying. Here is an exemplar, an example worthy to be imitated. You know, one of the tragedies of our life today is the lack of role models. You know, it's interesting that uh, I remember as a kid growing up, we had all kinds of role models. They may not really have been that good of guys, but you at least had people you tried to emulate. It's hard to find any today outside maybe the sport world. You certainly don't find in politics. Um, and, and a lot of other places. But uh, lack of role models. That's what we're called to be. And... uh It's interesting, Uh, there's a converse view here, though. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So out of Luke here, we get a little echo saying, be careful. If everybody's speaking well of you, that may be because you've compromised all the right people, right? So maybe they're compromising or you're masquerading. That's sort of the cautionary tone, the, the converse we get from Luke. Gaius and Demetrius walked in truth and obeyed the Word of God. They certainly weren't perfect, but they had consistent lives seeking to honor the Lord. Devoutly to be wished, huh? And John continues, I I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. He's going to use email. No, of course not. In fact, even email doesn't isn't the same as face to face. But I trust I shall shortly see thee. And we shall speak. Actually, the Greek says mouth to mouth. But our equivalent phrase in our language would be face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. And uh, interesting, uh, George Morrison of Glasgow is famous for making the remark: Peace is the possession of adequate resources. Well, the believer has peace because he he has his adequate resources in Jesus Christ. And uh, so it's... uh, now, I want you to notice something here. Do you notice something that's not said here in closing this letter? If it was written by Paul, what would it what say? Grace and peace be to you all. That's a code word that Paul uses to close his epistles. Interesting thing. None of the others use that term. Okay. But what a blessing it is to have a Christian friends. That's the other echo that comes out of this. When Paul arrived near Rome, some of his brethren went out to meet him. And it says, when whom Paul, when whom, when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. Paul finished this hazardous journey. He's on his way to Rome. What a joy it is when he's greeted with the brethren. We experience that too. We'll be called to speak at a conference and so forth. And how delightful it is when there's a group that has met the airplane. We don't need them. There's baggage and whatever, but still. But what a joy it is to be met, to be greeted. And that it makes it very special. Well, in the next session, uh, we're going to... This letter was personal to the individual about problems from inside the church. The next letter, Second John, was again to an individual, and it's also about false teachers from the outside. This one was about problems from the inside. The other one's going to be from problems from the outside who would appeal to love so that they might deny the truth. I want to talk about, this is an addenda to this, but I think we can squeeze it in, the most painful sin. As many of you know, we've gone through Nan and I've gone through some dark times. and uh, But some of the most painful part of those dark times wasn't the bankruptcy that we went through many years ago, uh, it wasn't uh, a lot of other things we had to point to with the earthquakes and what have you. The most pain we endured came from what turned out to be false friends. And that, that was a shock. People we'd known for 20 years that suddenly treated us, us as if we had leprosy because we were on the front pages of the financial section of the local paper. And uh, um, it was as if, we, as if we'd committed some kind of unforgettable sin. Unforgivable sin. There were some that wouldn't even take time to pray with us. And uh, that era was a very sober. Now, the good news is there were strangers we never met that rallied around us with an enthusiasm that was precious. Guys I didn't even met, but they chose to, it turned out, some very prominent people assembled uh, themselves as sort of an advisory board for us. But the question then really is, what sin has probably caused more pain than any other. More pain. Well, murder. No, sometimes the murders are painless, except for maybe the loved ones of the guy that was killed. Not, I'm, not, I'm, not, not, I'm not minimizing that. But just collectively speaking, what sin has probably caused more pain than any other? Leviticus 19 spells it out, starting at verse 16. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tale-bearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor, I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, Thou shalt not in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Exodus 20, verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's not just a question of lying, saying something's untrue. It's speaking of something untrue about a neighbor. See, my premise is that the most painful sin is gossip. That's caused more pain collectively than anything else you can imagine. Proverbs 10, starting verse 17. He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, but he that refuseth reproof ereth it. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. The tongue of the just is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. Gossip is a form of betrayal. Gossip is probably accountable for more personal pain and suffering than most of us have any appreciation of. Common, casual, yet hurtful beyond our imagining. Quietly, behind the flurry of daily priorities, its venom does its silent work. Undermining confidences, betraying relationships, spreading unseen injustices. It's disturbing to note how many of us have been injured deeply by gossip and by those who accept without checking negative or derogatory innuendos whispered behind our backs. What an opportunity to display loyalty, love, and by assuming the most charitable construction in advance, Demonstrate the foundation of a relationship. I like that, especially in advance. The tongue is a ready and willing instrument to talk about our neighbor behind his back. We learn from Romans, 2 Corinthians 12, James 4, and so on. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. Lest there be debates and envyings and wraths and strifes and backbitings, whisperings, swelling tumults. On he goes. Second Corinthians, Paul. Back to Proverbs eleven thirteen. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Concealeth the matter. Proverbs eighteen eight. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost. Parts of the belly. Those aren't surface scratches, are they? He that goeth about as a tailbearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. Where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals out of burning coals and wood to the fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of tailbar are his wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Another repeat of that one. John 8. This they said, tempting him that they might accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued to ask him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, I love this, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And of course they all quietly They all realized they had other appointments elsewhere. What is a true friend? One who doesn't require explanations. That's a true friend. One who gives the benefit of the doubt. One who is loyal and shuns any form of betrayal. I love this poem. I've just included it as an appendix here by Barbara Young. She calls it, I Hear It Said. Last night, my friend, he says he's my friend, came in and questioned me. I hear it said that you've done this and that. I come to ask, are these things true? A glint was in his eye of small distrust. His words were crisp and hot. He measured me with anger and flung down a little heap of facts that had come to him. I hear it said that you've done this and that. Suppose I have. And are you not my friend? And are you not, my friend, enough to say? If it were true, there'd be reason in it. And if I cannot know the how and why, still I can trust you, waiting for a word. Or if no word, if no word ever come. Is friendship just a thing of afternoons? A pleasuring one's friend and one's dear self? Greed for a sedate approval of his pace? Suspicion if he take one little turn upon the road, one flight into the air? And has not sought you for a yea or nay? No. Friendship is not so. I am my own. And howsoever near my friend may draw into my soul, there is a legend hung over a certain straight and narrow way, which says, Dear friend, ye may not enter here. I would the time has come, and it is not, when men shall rise and say, He is my friend. He has done this? What is that to me? Think you I have a check upon his head or cast a guiding rain across his neck i am his friend and for that cause i walk not over close beside him leaving still space for his silences and space for mine okay well next session i want for that i want you to study second john and you might also take a look the question is going to occur as who is it addressed to and i'm astounded to discover that the view that I hold, I can't find any commentators that agree with me. Okay? Now, there are two theories. One is that this is an idiom of the church. The other view is that it's some prominent person in the Ephesian congregation that will never know who it is. Those two views were proposed by Jerome way back in the, what the first century or whatever, and is echoed by virtually every commentator I consult. Well, it's one of those two things. Now, most commentators recognize that it's not satisfactory as a term for the church because we're not children of the church; we're the children of God. I mean, the, you know, that the, the, trying to make the elect lady Mother Church somehow may have been fine for Jerome, but not. Not with our understanding. But I'm going to suggest to you that you can clearly see who it is if you study the text very carefully. And we're going to do that next time. And to preparation for that, you might want to read John 19, especially verses 25 through 27, because we'll be drawing on some hidden insights regarding that next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the examples you've brought to our attention by the writing of our friend John. We do pray, Father, that you'd help us take these to heart, help us to be diligent on doctrine on the one hand, but very gentle and loving in terms of our brethren in the the fellowship. And, Father, we also would pray that you would help us be vastly more circumspect concerning our stewardship of our loyalties that we would not succumb to the sin of gossip. We pray, Father, that you would just cleanse us, that you would help us take every thought captive, that even our thought life would be more pleasing in your sight. Help us, Father, to be put the most charitable construction on all that we encounter that we too might be living examples of what you would have us be we thank you for your word we thank you for the holy spirit to open that to our hearts and our lives but above all father we thank you for the gift of your son our coming king whose name we commit ourselves
1: amen You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 1, 2, 3 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.